you seen this? Welcome to Why Haven't You Seen This with me, Emily Barton. To keep up to date with all things new podcast, movie trivia, follow me on the Why Haven't You Seen This Facebook page and Instagram channel. Now, on this episode of Why Haven't You Seen This, I'm joined by co-host of We Love Movies on Spin 1038, Mr. Andy McCarroll, and also the Andy McCarroll Movies Movie Podcast, which everybody has to also listen to if you're a, a movie buff or a movie freak, and I imagine if you're listening to this podcast, you are. So, uh, Andy, thanks a million for joining me on this one. So, this podcast, we are talking about... A David Fincher underrated thriller, The Game, from 1997, starring Michael Douglas and Sean Penn, and a film which is sort of a mishmash of Christmas Carol meets Wall Street. But for anybody who hasn't seen The Game, because I would say it is probably one of the less lesser known David Fincher films, what's The Game about? Basically, Michael Douglas plays this investment banker. He's, like you said, a good analogy there, kind of a Christmas Carol meets Wall Street. He's this basically depressed Gordon Gecko. He has all the money you could want and nothing else. He's unmarried. He's unhappy. He's alone. But on his birthday, which coincidentally is the same birthday his father committed suicide, his brother, played by Sean Penn, shows up to give him a unique gift, shall we say. It's a voucher for this game, essentially, of you know, unknown rules and objectives. Michael Douglas visits this consumer recreation services. He's put through a lot of you know, humiliating tests, kind of tailoring the game for each participant, rather. Uh, after that, he's told he's rejected. But of course, has he actually been rejected? And then the game begins. And he goes through a number of tasks, a number of thrilling, shall we say, set pieces that, you know, it's still kind of decided, has he actually been accepted? Is this part of the game? And that's kind of the, the theme throughout the film. Is this all just, you know, a setup as part of this? Or are these people actually trying to kill him? That's what I love about this film. I think it's, and when I saw it first, I saw it a couple of years ago, and and it was one of those ones, I think I, 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 think I rented it in Extra Vision, funnily enough, and... <laughs> It was just one I kind of saw and I was I knew it was a thriller and I knew Michael Douglas was in it and that was as much as I knew. I didn't know it was a David Fincher film. I didn't even look that closely. And what I loved about the film was the fact that as the film goes on, you really can't tell what the hell is going on. You really don't know what's going on and it just escalates and escalates and it keeps you questioning all the way through. Is this the game? Is it not a, not the game? And also there's there's kind of moments where you're kind of wondering, there's got to be more to this than meets the eye. Like, who are these CRS people and what's their what is what's their game? And in a way, I kind of expected the plot to keep getting thicker and thicker and thicker and thicker. And it's just does just it is a bit of an adrenaline ride, albeit it's a typical David Fincher, slow moving, slow paced, atmospheric type of a film. But things for Michael Douglas's character just keep going from bad to worse yeah and i think obviously that's the name of the show why haven't you seen this it's an easy sell to people like to get people to agree to see it like you've got you know michael douglas and sean penn two you know huge actors you've got david fincher who you know if you mention seven fight clubs zodiac to people like oh and there is that real sort of why haven't i seen this like it's an easy sell as well in relation to the genre so if you're trying to recommend you know a mind-bending science fiction film or a horror they're you know, even comedies, comedies can be very subjective. Like you could recommend, you know, 
21 Jump Street to somebody or you could recommend, you know, in the loop. It depends on their humor, whereas you know, most people are, are liking thrillers. And I think I imagine you're like me, you're the kind of the film geek in your circle of family and friends. So people are always constantly coming to you for recommendations and you're always on the back foot trying to think of something that isn't generic you know like something like not to trash it because it's one of the, the best films of all time but Shawshank Redemption that's a real for me that's a film that people say, that's my favorite film that's a film for people who say you know the Beatles is their favorite you know you're like, their you favorite music yeah <laughs> you know it, it's always Shawshank or it's always Goodfellas and it's just like that that's the safe answer whereas I think this is something that has enough about it where people you'll recommend it like you'll say Michael Douglas you'll say Sean Penn, like, all right Graham like again not to sound because they are either, but Michael Douglas and Sean Penn are I doubt anyone's favorite actor but nobody hates them so it's it's kind of in that nice little space where oh yeah they're, they're good I'll watch something they're in but you wouldn't have seen necessarily everything either one has done and this falls nicely into that as well because yeah like you said you have Fincher who has this you know pedigree as a director because there isn't many directors names you know Scorsese, Tarantino, Spielberg, all men, of course, that you have that, you know, recognition to him, whereas, you know, most people wouldn't know, you know, who directors, you know, most of the films they've seen, but he has a name, essentially, that will draw you into seeing that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny, because, as I say, look, I didn't know it was by Fincher, but I think if, if people haven't seen it, I would like to think that at the very least, if, if our conversation isn't convincing enough, which I think it will be, um, I, the fact that it is a Fincher film uh, will hopefully kind of in, intrigue people enough to, to kind of check it out and to try it out or at least look it up. I mean, having said that, I think there's probably a couple of reasons why it's not necessarily out there. I mean, it didn't do quite as well at the box office as his as Seven or his subsequent films. I think it like they, they spent 50 million on it and it only kind of, I think, returned 100 million worldwide versus say Seven, they spent hmm. uh, 33 million and they made 300 million worldwide. But I think, you know, it's, it's problematic, I think, to always rate a film based on box office because you've called classics and cult hits. And as you say, like films, films I think are, are subjective. And I think if you have, a unique thriller in which I think this is very unique. It's a unique storyline and it's very different. And then you've got David Fincher's kind of style of storytelling and atmosphere that really makes it a really good thrill ride. It's not perfect, but it's a really good entertaining thriller. No, like it isn't, it wouldn't be anyone's on that. It's not there, like it's not Michael Douglas's best, it's not Fincher's best. And even then, when you said at the start a question I really should have been more prepared for, what's the film about? You can't say it in an interesting way without giving away an awful lot of the plot. Like, it's not like Seven where you go, oh, you see he's tracking a serial killer who's after the Seven Deadly Sins. Grant, right, that sounds good. I, I, I'm interested <laughs> in that. You can't give an elevator pitch for this. You're like, it's, it's just watch it. It's, it's the game. The game doesn't, well, that doesn't mean anything. Just, just watch it. Just sit down and watch this. Trust me, you, you'll like it. And I think everyone who I've kind of harangued into it, I haven't got any negative feedback on it yes saying no that was terrible i had people say it was good it was okay but like i've never had anyone come back and say it's bad but most people seem to really enjoy it and are surprised that it's kind of fallen through the cracks and it never really found that second life like you had something like like shawshank which we talked about which didn't do particularly well films like the usual suspects and things like that which you know with netflix put them up you know they find this second audience or this second life this never really got that and i think as well fincher has kind of said he regrets making it because he didn't have a third act for the film when he made it and he's not happy with the ending. So if, it, if your own director is saying that, it kind of, it would put you off watching it based on like, if you heard, well, if the director doesn't like it, why am I going to like it? But 
I, I think with him as well, he's such a meticulous director. He reminds me very much of, of Kubrick. I don't think he's an actor's director. I think he's very, not even story driven, just like the, the, the visuals of it as well. And I think, I think the games is a beautiful looking film, but it's not something that has that iconography. That's something like, you know, Fight Club or Seven would have where you could put it for any frame of that up and go, I know straight away what that film is. It looks great, but it doesn't have that distinction that I think his other films have. So I think that's why it's kind of the, the redheaded stepchild in his catalogue. And it's interesting because I, I read that he was supposed to make this one before Seven, but then Brad Pitt signed on and it was kind of like, let's, let's strike what, while the iron is hot with Brad Pitt. And this came after. And I kind of wonder, and of course, I know there was probably a lot of politics behind the scenes with the, with the writing of the film and the storyline, as I say, you know, the third chapter. And it was certainly David Fincher who was pushing it into the realm of, you know, the Scrooge story. And the, I think he was attempting a sort of redemption story with Michael Douglas's character. And I suppose it's, it's one of those things you can wonder what if, but effectively what happened, what happened. But I do kind of wonder, you know, had he made this first, what would have been different, you know, and how would he have made that ending slightly different. Um, similarly, what I found really interesting about this film when I was researching it was how originally Jodie Foster was due to play his sibling instead of Sean, Sean Penn plays his brother Conrad. And originally Jodie Foster had been asked to play his sister, younger sister, and she declined and she said, actually, no, I prefer to be his daughter. <laughs> Even though there's 18 years difference between them. <laughs> and they said, no, we don't like that idea. And then she sued them. <laughs> Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. Ironically, she had actually played his daughter in a, uh, a Disney film years before yeah. that. And she, like you said, she sued her and her production company, sued them for replacing her. And then, oddly enough, she would end up going on to, to work with Fincher then in Panic Room. But there is, there was that. You can kind of see that kind of behind the scenes thing in the camera. Like the writers um, had said Fincher was the one pushing them into this Scrooge direction. And you can see even at the, the end of it, like, there, there isn't that redemptive arc. He doesn't have, you know, the, the Christmas dinner with Tiny Tim. He doesn't change as a person. Like, it ends with him trying to kill himself. And the kind of the, the, the big arc at the end is he goes and has coffee with the woman who's flying off to Australia, which, you know, it's underwhelming as far as, you know, uh, I'd much rather a lot of Muppets jumping up and singing and, you know, <laughs> paying for Tiny Tim's surgeries. But, you know, a billionaire going on a date with somebody who works in a, a company that essentially ruins people's lives full time. <laughs> isn't you know the most uplifting of endings yeah it was a bit of an anti-climax you know there's no wrongs for him to write and as you say like the the, the biggest sort of turning point for him is the prospect of a date with this mm. bird who's basically spent may, spent the last sort of 48 hours terrorizing him so uh yeah it's a little it's a little bit disappointing from that point of view but it's what i what i really like about it and i've read a couple of articles of different perceptions and, and analysis of the film and there's been talk about how it's, it's almost a commentary on the making of film because obviously everybody who's working for the CRS company, so CRS are like, mm. what's that? What's that stand for again, Andy? Consumer Recreational Services. You've done your homework, or you just remembered? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a savant, and I remember ridiculous things, but I couldn't tell you what I've done this morning. <laughs> I love it. Um, so you know, the, these guys are kind of set up as you know, who the hell are these people? And effectively, they're a production company, and they all of their staff are actors. And it kind of made me think of the Truman Show, and you know, everyone is in on it. But yeah. throughout the film, you're sort of on this ride with him on the back of his coattails. You know, I find I find myself at the start of the the game thinking they're on it they're in on it and then going 
oh my god what if, what if none of them are in on it <laughs> you know, like it, it does I, and i think that's kind of what makes it what makes it thrilling is the journey and the it, you're constantly questioning yourself and questioning who people are and you know you're constantly wondering there ha there's more to the story there's, there's there's going to be more unraveling as it goes on uh, i wish there was <laughs> you, you do in that because this film wouldn't work otherwise because if you like if this doesn't knock along at that pace where you're like oh is he in it is this part of that is that part of that like if you stop for a second and go this is ridiculous this film is basically swiss cheese there's so many holes in it like if you start and analyze like every part like one like how do you agree to get like everybody in your life to agree to play this game without somebody tipping you off what's what's the bill of it even like we, we talked about at the end where he, he commits suicide i know there's kind of a, that throwaway line oh i'm supposed to throw you off like if he goes anywhere else this is a very different film and even at the end you know let's say a friend of yours who you've basically tortured for a week and you've you know buried and left for dead in mexico you've driven them to the point where they've committed suicide in front of you and then you walk up with a t-shirt and like a bottle of champagne. Like, I think there's a very different conversation to be had there. I don't think all of a sudden you're going to flip and go, yeah, no, you, you got me there. No, you have really uncovered some layers of psychosis here that are going to take years of therapy to get rid of. Like, well, I well, think casting Michael Douglas in that is, is why that works. I think if it's any, like if you cast, I call it the Tom Hanks rule, if you cast Tom Hanks in that, and that happens, you'd just be thinking, these people are really mean. Why is everybody being so mean to such a nice guy? Whereas Michael Douglas has that, you know, earned reputation of being a, a bit of a sleaze. So I think at that point you see, oh, well, yeah, no, I don't kind of feel sorry for him. And it's not really a redemption story. Like in a way you kind of think it's set up as a redemption story. Like it opens with, this was old footage of his birthday party when he was a kid and his father, you know a big banking mogul is very distant and not there and his father commits suicide first five minutes of the movie and you know it opens on as you say like the gorgon gordon gecko character he's had to step into that role and you can see that detachment from you know childhood is still with him and his relationships with his ex-wife and his brother are very distant and he's seems like a bit of an isolated sad character and it's set up to be I, I would have thought more of a redemption story mm -hmm. and to a certain extent you certainly towards the sort of latter part of the film you just start feeling really sorry for him because they're just <laughs> totally screwing with his life and he's terrorizing him and as you say then it, when it gets to the point where it's like oh! <laughs> um, you, you sort of expect some kind of a freak out reaction given what he's been through and he's been beaten and bloodied and thrown himself off a roof and, and as you say you know and then it kind of he's walking out and oh well at least you know we don't know if he's found his soul but at least he might have found his soul mate <laughs> <laughs> but even that like is she have they got like everything they've shared the shared experience they have has all been a lie so he essentially doesn't know this woman apart from the fact that you know i, I spent a lot of you know as Sandra Bullock says in the classic speed, you know, relationships built in these intense circumstances don't work. So it's not outside the realm of possibilities. They sit down for 10 minutes and have a coffee and she says, well, actually, there's a part-time job. I'm, I'm actually writing a novel or, you know, I'm into Scientology or I'm a <laughs> Trump supporter or whatever it is that's going to immediately turn him off. And I think, you know, he is this super mogul. He reminds me kind of like of Charles Foster Kane and Citizen Kane, where you're like, you're going on this journey to, to humanize them, but it doesn't really do that. And I think 
that part of the story appeals to Fincher. And I think it's no coincidence that his next film now is actually kind of set in the world of, of Citizen Kane. So maybe this was his first attempt at that. And that's why he doesn't like it because he doesn't feel like this was, you know, as lofty as an ambition as you can have to, to make Citizen Kane again. Oh, I know. I think it was because the way I looked at it quite cynically was he was into her because he's Michael Douglas and he liked the look of her red bra. <laughs> I'm sure he's gone for women for less. <laughs> Yeah, no, I have to say there was little niggly bits of trivia. I, I love the, you know, the useless trivia that you'll probably never need to know except for maybe on the nerdiest possible movie table quiz that you can come across. I love the, the little kind of random bits of trivia. And some of the stuff that I looked up was um, Charles Martinet, who plays his father at the start of the film, uh, has apparently been voicing Mario, Nintendo's Mario, since yeah. the 90s. <laughs> I just thought that was a beautiful piece of uh, pointless <laughs> trivia. And Spike, Spike Jones has a cameo in the end of it, which I it was a total blink and you miss a cameo, which I thought was kind of cool. Yeah, he's one of the, the paramedics in that as well. He's the, him and Finch are apparently great mates in real life, which is, again, one of those little bromances that I was like, oh yeah, that, that sounds kind of cool. Like you'd love to see a behind the scenes conversation with the two of them. By all accounts, Finch are like, you know, Brad Pitt talking about Red Norton. Like he, he has this like really dry, sense of humor unfortunately i think a lot of it doesn't really come true in his films but he, he has that you know i said the cuber thing that really cold sterile thing to it so I, i'd love to see him do an out now i know there's funny bits in, in fight club and things like that but i'd like to see him do a kind of an out now comedy and see if he could actually do that you know full time essentially yeah it's very dry like there's definitely like bits of humor in mindhunter as well and i absolutely love mindhunter but it's very like it's very subtle and it's very dry um, and I think, you know, I would say, albeit this film being somewhat, the third act being somewhat problematic, and I wouldn't let anybody, I wouldn't let that put anybody off because it is such a good, it is a typical David Fincher atmospheric, thrilling joyride. But, you know, I would always say Fincher's never made a bad movie, but did he make Benjamin Button? Yes, uh, three and a half hours of him mourning for his sure. father, essentially, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, think I, 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 I went for the kind of humanist version of that, but no, I think yours is more accurate. <laughs> yeah, I think that was the only film of Fincher's that I loathed on, on a very deep level. Otherwise, I kind of, I love his stuff and his stuff is brilliant. I mean, Seven for me is still by far the best and Mindhunter, the two seasons of Mindhunter on Netflix are amazing, albeit very disappointing that it seems to be cancelled, it's too busy or too expensive or something. What are the, the, and I'd be curious to get your take because as a woman, and a lot of the criticism is he can't write interesting female characters. And I think that's true, but I would argue he can't write interesting male characters either. Like none of the, the and again, this isn't like a bad thing. Like the, the like, you know, even Zodiac where, you know, he's, you know, Robert Grayson is this obsessive, he's driven, or our social network, which was written by Zuckerberg is pretty much, you know, he's one step away from being a robot. Do you think he has that thing where he just, he's all about the visuals and the narrative, but he doesn't know how to, you know, most of his characters will start off at point A and will finish at point A, but it's actually the story and the, 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 the narrative surrounding them that drives it, not the person themselves. Like even this film, which is supposed to be a Christmas Carol, doesn't have the redemptive arc at the end, like we discussed. Do you agree disagree with that very long-winded question <laughs> no I, I i do agree with you and i'm kind of glad you asked me that because it's something that does frustrate me about his films is you know the strength of his films are is the storytelling as opposed to the characters it's more the storytelling and the atmosphere and the and the ride 
and the way he shoots his films are they're so beautiful but when you look at all of the different characters i can't say of of any of his movies that i felt particularly cl- close um i mean i felt very sorry for gwen paltrow's character in seven um, but i never really feel like there's much depth the characters in his movies I think what really draws people in as you say it's the story and it's the atmosphere and you know it's it's the it's the experience of it like it's funny um Zodiac is one of Kevin my partner's favorite movies like he loves the Zodiac and I've watched it and rewatched it and rewatched it and I keep trying to like it <laughs> and I just can't and I know like his he had a huge amount of issues with Jake Gyllenhaal and that that um that film I think him and Jake I think Jake felt very bullied as you were saying earlier he's not not an actor's director by any stretch of the ma- imagination um and I wonder is there something to that that he's more interested in creating a really spectacular visual story as opposed to working with the actors closely and really kind of doing that deep dive into their characters and and focusing on making those characters you know something that people can really relate to and reach reach for and i think he does miss that in a lot of his films like even his treatment of uh, the girl with the dragon tattoo like it was a visually a very nice remake and great actors like with daniel craig and rooney mara and uh, i mean stellan sarsgaard for me is just a legend uh, but there's no real there was no real depth to it i know he was telling a story it wasn't his story but i just didn't feel like he added much depth to it the swedish version was was i think much yeah. uh, grittier um and same with gone girl like i couldn't re- i didn't really care about any of the characters in gone girl no and oh. it's, it's another thing as well that like the his version of, of elizabeth sandler isn't she doesn't have that vulnerability that i thought was in the original films i think he played her quite cold and hard and Gone Girl as well, perfect example. It even says it in the, in the film itself. I'm basically, I'm living with a spider. Like he dehumanizes his characters to the point where these are just, you know, they're pieces on a chessboard for him to move around. I think having, you know, 87 takes to the point where Mark Ruffalo's ready to punch it in the face shows he doesn't, that's not, like he's not having 87 takes to get a better performance. He's doing it because he wants them to move and to go in a certain way. And I think you know, Ridley Scott kind of hit the nail on the head there. He said, if you're making actors do something 87 times, that's your fault for not knowing what you want from them, not their fault for not giving it to you. Like, like again, he's one of my favorite directors. I love pretty much all, every film he's made, but I do think there's a certain dehumanized sense to his films that he doesn't have. Like, he doesn't have that, you know, like, like Spielberg, where you're like, you know, I love this character. I want to see this character taken out and put into a different film or a sequel. It's just like, they exist primarily in the two hours or two and a half hours that I've watched them. And there's nothing else outside of that world for them. And I think that's a, a problem for those films. I think it's the reason why I, I don't particularly like an awful lot of Stanley Kubrick films because I don't care about anyone in these films. And there's only so often I can watch, you know, two hours of, you know, oh yeah, that's, you know, that's really white. That's a really white spaceship. That's a really, you know, impressive monkey bone you've thrown into the air there. I don't care about anyone else in the film. Like even The Shining, like I, I don't care about anybody in that. Like even Jack Nicholson, the family, it's just... A bunch of events that happen to people who you know could live or die for all i care but it's, it's just interesting to look at as opposed to actually having any sort of affection towards it yeah it was interesting you mentioned the shining because that was another one where you know there was all kinds of issues with kubrick and i think stephen king didn't am i right in saying stephen king did not love the film no but he made a tv series which he did love which is just one of the worst things you'll ever see in your life it's it's the biggest advertisement for getting off cocaine that i've ever seen in my life <laughs> 
I know that well, that's the that's the problem, I think, isn't it? You know, and, and that's something that that can frustrate you as well, as if there's a, a source material that is so affecting and it can be really hard that from going from book to, to screen to get that right because obviously as well you know it's hard to, to make that transition to, to screen and more often than not it's disappointing but um i actually remember reading the shining just a little side comment here um i remember reading the shining when i was 14 in portugal in the burning sun and uh thinking i'd be okay reading it kind of like joey and friends you know put put it in the freezer reading it by the poolside <laughs> during the day and being absolutely terrified and thinking there has to be something wrong with me if I'm terrified of this story during the day in a sunny place. <laughs> you know, it was that affecting. So yeah, it was I, I I'd be the same as you. I think the shining for me wasn't quite as affecting, let's say, as the book. Um, albeit I mean, I I, I do always enjoy just looking at Jack Nicholson do what he does, but uh, yeah, other other than that, it's a bit disappointing. But in terms of the game then, like, is there a particular sequence in it or is there a particular scene in it that for you was just awesome or was it a, a thread of things? It's the, the, the tone of the film I find myself drawn to rather than any particular. Like, there is some good set pieces in it. There's one where he comes back and his house has been completely overturned. But uh, there's also there's a great scene actually in a taxi or a taxi goes off up here. But for me, why I like it, it's just that sense of unease, it's, which is really hard to do without, you know, throwing everything at the at the screen you know the kind of you look at films like paranormal activity where you're just like it's set up like a ghost house to make you feel a certain way and manipulate you i don't feel this does that there's just this gradual sense of unease and it's nothing particular there's not one particular scene or one particular you know jump out moment it's just this constant escalation of dread and you could even see yourself in that scenario it's like i, I just don't feel right about what's going on but it's not enough where you'd say oh, jump out the window do this do that it's not an obvious solution and i think that's why you know to contradict myself it kind of humanizes him in a certain way that you're you can see yourself in that scenario but not you know that you'd see horror films you're like get out of the house don't go back upstairs don't do this this film doesn't have that you could see yourself going oh no i'll just leave it just a little bit i'll just leave it just a little bit until it's actually too much like well i can't go back now i've come too far what about you do you have any particular standouts in your I just like the really creepy, ominous moments in it. So, and like when he comes home, having spent, I think it's, I don't know if it's immediately after it, but he spent a full day in CRS uh, being completely whittled down. And I think that was kind of the first time that you sort of see him in a more humble, vulnerable position. Mm. But when he come, drives home to the mansion and he sees the clown on the ground mm. in a position, in the same position that his father was found having thrown himself from the roof. and it was moments like that and moments like when he's watching the news and the news anchor is talking about mm. world news and economics or whatever. And then he starts sort of talking to him and then you're sort of going, is that, is that planted or is actually, is this a story of this guy starting to lose his mind? And is this actually a narrative on mental health? And is, is this the beginning of his spiral, you know, to, to the dark side? So there were kind of, ominous moments in it that I really really liked and it just kind of I liked the way it spirals out of control and I love how as the film goes on you're constantly questioning who who's in on it and you're you're questioning yourself and you're doubting yourself and I think for so many thrillers when you when you know what's happening or what's going to happen it's a, it's mm. you know the, the the game is over but with this it does keep you guessing to the end and and even you know to the point on the roof yeah. where she has bluffed him so many times 
that you know you, you actually don't know which way it's going you know so it does it's a thrill ride right up to the end it's I think just the last like five ten minutes you're like for feck's sake <laughs> <laughs> you, you touched on a scene there that I uh, yeah, it's it's the most Irish scene in the world where he goes to the, the CRM office and they say, look, you'll be in and out in an hour. And he ends up spending all day and they keep adding more and more tests and they're bringing in lunch. I watched that with a, a friend, American friend of mine. And he's like, I'd be fucking gone after like, you know, he, as soon as he goes over the hour, I'm out of there. It's like, no, it's a real Irish thing. I'm like, no, I, I couldn't be rude. I'd have to kind of stay. I wouldn't, you know, I'll moan about it afterwards, but I'll help you at the time sort of thing. So I was like, kind of the, the most Irish scene in the film for me is that where it's like, no, I wouldn't be able to just walk out and leave. I feel like, you know, I've, I've been here two hours. I don't want to waste this man's time who, you know, is actually wasting my time. Yeah, no, definitely. It it leaves you wanting a little bit, but it's, it's one hell of a ride. And it's definitely one that everybody should check out and if you like Fincher movies you're going to enjoy it I mean there's, there's no question about it you're going to enjoy this and it's it's very dark it's very it's a real slow burn film so it, it definitely builds the suspense and then just totally messes with your head which is I think for me is the perfect kind of ingredient for for a really good thriller is keeping you guessing right up to the end what would you say to somebody if they were kind of questioning whether or not to watch the film I'd say it's it's something that you haven't really seen before and it's a thriller is something that is very hard to do right and I think it's one of those mid-budget films that they don't really make anymore like even something like this isn't going to exist on Netflix with this caliber of people it's always you know like when was the last time if any you've seen you know a, a mid-budget film story driven on Netflix that you would go out and watch again something like this you know the, the 50 60 million budget story big actor no process for no um action for a sequel they don't make them like this anymore i know it's a cliche to say true it is something that unravels it's something that is a really good a-list cast great acting really well directed very well written i feel despite the, the problems with the third act but it's something that gets under your skin and something that, you know, a couple of days later, you're still, you've got questions. You're thinking like that, like even now as I'm speaking, like how much did that bloody thing cost? Like what was the bill <laughs> that got slid across at the end that the two of them thought, yeah, no, we need to go halves on this. Like what happened to the roof of that place? <laughs> Wait, I'm thinking about, like, that's a really fancy room with that, that glass could be a hundred years old. <laughs> like could be just like a, a woman thing. <laughs> I was thinking that the I just popped in my head that the guy he fires in the middle of the film is at the party at the end. Like that's an awkward conversation to have. <laughs> <laughs> because there's nothing outside, like there's nothing that happens him in the film that you could justify firing this guy for. So it's not as if you can go in and go, well, actually they told me this, that, and he was like, no, I, I drew these entire conclusions myself. So sorry. And your man to his credit, like I don't give a shit. Now I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's very good. So where can, if people want to check the game out, where can they watch it? I had to rent it on YouTube for $1.99, which is a service I didn't know was available. It's like every good film. It's not on Netflix. It's not on Amazon Prime. Uh, it's on the Sky app, if you have Sky, which uh, I found out after the fact, after paying my $1.99, which I can't get refunded now. But yeah, for, for the sake of $1.99, for kind of that sense of renting a film again, which is something I haven't done in a long time. So I think that kind of added to it because I, I had this film on VHS for years, and I think that's the last time I watched it as well. So it was strange seeing it in, in HD with, uh, you know, not having little grainy filters and not having a little, you know, not to fast forward through 15 minutes of ads by Polygram. 
<laughs> Perfect. Well, listen, thank you so much, Andy, for joining me. And I hope we've inspired people to check out the game. It is definitely worth a watch. Why, oh, why? Why haven't you seen this? Why, oh, why? Why haven't you seen this?